You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Now, if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Isaiah, chapter 61. The book of Isaiah, chapter 61. Last night, my daughter asked me if uh, I was going to preach on a Christmas theme tonight for the Christmas uh, Christmas Eve service. And I said, well, actually, this whole Christmas series that I've been doing is not not very Christmassy at all. In fact, no, none of the passages or messages have really been Christmassy, if you're thinking of wise men and shepherds and stuff like that. The book of Isaiah, the very first message that we did was, unto us is born a son, and we saw that we actually dealt with a passage that was a prophetic sign given to a wicked king of deliverance of his nation from impending doom from Isaiah chapter 7. And the second message unto us was born a sovereign was actually a passage that dealt with the future millennial reign of Jesus Christ when he takes the throne of his father David and he will rule over the nations with a rod of iron and put down all of his subjects and put, or put down all of his enemies and, and elevate all of his subjects and the glory of that reign. And then Yesterday we talked about substitutionary, penal substitutionary atonement and the sacrifice that Christ would make. None of that is really Christmassy, is it? So in keeping with our theme in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 61, we're going to be looking at this passage and seeing that unto us at Christmas is born a Savior. Unto us is born a Savior. Isaiah 61, let's read it together. The Spirit of the Lord, we're going to, not the whole chapter, we're actually going to read the first three verses and then we're going to be looking specifically at verses 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting, so they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Now that passage, to give you a couple words of its context, that passage comes in uh, sort of right in the middle of a series of chapters that deal with the future for the nation of Israel. Chapter 60 and chapter 62 both deal with the exaltation of the nation of Israel, God's dealings that there is a future for Israel, God is going to work out His plan for the nation of Israel, and that is in chapter 60 and 61, 60, 61 and 62. And right in the middle of that is this description of the work and the office of the Messiah, that this Messiah would come. And part of this passage deals with the Messiah's first coming, and part of the passage deals with the Messiah's second coming. And we've seen as we've gone through the book of Isaiah that oftentimes in prophecy, we see the prophet speaking about an individual or a person's work. In the case of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, the description of that work oftentimes gives details of two different events that are separated by long distances of time. The coming of the Lord Jesus described in Isaiah chapter 9 that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, uh, or a week ago actually, that, that description gives details about the coming of the Lord Jesus unto us as born a son and what he would look like, but then it also deals with his future reign as well. Isaiah 53, which we looked at yesterday, remember that? There was descriptions there of the glory of the exaltation of this servant, which in terms of, his, of, of the nation of Israel is yet a future event, but there's also a description there of this Messiah's first coming. The same is true here in Isaiah chapter 61. There is a description here in this passage of the Messiah's first coming and a description of things that he's going to do in his second coming. If this passage has a bit of a ring of familiarity to you, it's probably because you have read it in the New Testament. 
It is quoted in Luke chapter 4. When Jesus begins his ministry, he goes to his hometown of Nazareth. And he goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath, and they present to him the role of the prophet, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And Jesus stood up in his own synagogue, and he read Isaiah 61, verses 1, and part of verse 2. And then he did a very interesting thing. He stopped quoting in the middle of of verse 2, and he rolled up the scroll, and he put it away, and he said to them, Today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, here's what the Lord Jesus read, Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Now in mid-sentence, he stopped. And he rolled up the scroll and handed it back to the attendant and said, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This was an odd and curious thing to do because the rest of the sentence was also He stopped in the middle of the sentence, and the rest of the sentence describes him as well. But the rest of the sentence was not what he came to do in his first coming. What did Jesus leave out? He didn't really leave anything out, but he stopped in the middle of the sentence as if to emphasize something. Everything that he had just read, today is fulfilled, but there's more that will be fulfilled. And what is the more? The rest of verse 2. And the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Jesus quoted the first half of that sentence and not the second half because he was making a distinction. There's something that he came to do the first time. There's something he's coming to do the second time. What he came to do the first time was to preach the gospel to the afflicted, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. What is he going to do when he comes back the second time? The very next phrase. To proclaim the year of the vengeance of our God. But he didn't come the first time to exact or pour out the wrath of God upon sinners. He came the first time to do what was necessary to save you and I, sinners. He came to do the first time what was necessary to save us, but not to pour out his wrath upon sin and upon sinners. So we're going to look today at what the Messiah came to do. Unto us is born a Savior, and everything that we describe in chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, all of those descriptions are things, are descriptions of what the Lord Jesus came to do the very first time. They are spiritual descriptions of spiritual realities. And the whole passage will remain a mystery to you if you think that what is being described are actually physical things, proclaiming liberty or freedom to prisoners in prisons or captives who are held captive by nations. It's not physical prisoners, for instance, and physical captives that he is describing. These are spiritual terms describing spiritual realities. So take a look at it, Isaiah chapter 61. Let's look at the three things that the Lord Jesus came to do at his first time. And all three of these are descriptions of his saving work the salvation that he came to grant to us. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. And that is a reference to the fact that the Spirit of God indwelt the Lord Jesus Christ. In Isaiah 11, verse 2, it says that the Spirit of God would dwell upon the Messiah. Jesus, though he was fully God and fully man, he was fully God and fully man, but he did not live his life under the power of his divine nature. He lived his human life under the power and influence of the Holy Spirit. It was the Spirit of God who came upon him. At his baptism, it was the Spirit of God who sanctified him and set apart and gave him the power to do to live a holy life, gave him the power to do the miracles. The life that he lived, he lived just like the life that you and I are called to live, under the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how Jesus lived his life. The Spirit of God came upon the Messiah and anointed him and empowered him to do these three things. Look at them. The first one, to bring good news to the afflicted. The word afflicted means humble, poor, or meek. In fact, the King James says to preach the good tidings to the meek. The ESV says to proclaim the gospel to the poor. 
And that was what Jesus came to do. Now, who are the poor? Once again, this is not physical poverty. You don't think in financial terms, okay, poor people, we need to go down to the mission or the ministry and, and people out on the streets. That's not what's being described. By poor, Isaiah is describing the poor in spirit. This is a spiritual term. It is the, those who are poor in spirit who will inherit the earth. It is those who are poor in spirit that Jesus came to proclaim the gospel to. In fact, in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus quotes this, he uses those words to proclaim or to preach the gospel to the poor. And it is the poor in spirit. Who are the poor in spirit? Who are the poor in spirit? The poor in spirit are men and women who come to understand that they have absolutely nothing to offer to God which might commend them to Him. Being poor in spirit means that you are broken, you are humbled, you are contrite, you are the type of person described in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2, where God says, But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. A person who is poor in spirit realizes that I am a poor, blind, naked, depraved, wicked, helpless, and hopeless sinner. And I have absolutely no righteousness. I have no spiritual good that commends me to God. Nothing that I can offer or give back to God with which He could be pleased. And so I am broken and humble and contrite. And I realize that I need a Savior. That is the type of person that the Lord Jesus came to save. Jesus said, I came to call not the righteous to repentance, but whom? Sinners. Those who are well don't need a physician. People who are self-righteous, to them the gospel is foolishness. The gospel makes no sense to the person who's not yet convinced of his sin, that doesn't see himself as a bad, poor, wicked, depraved sinner. The person who thinks he has all kinds of spiritual good to commend himself to God, doesn't. the gospel doesn't come to that person. The gospel can't even be embraced by that person. Because until you understand that I need a Savior, until you recognize that, you're never going to turn to the Savior for salvation. And so if you think that you are spanky, and that you are good, and that when you stand before God, He's going to look at your good deeds and your bad deeds, and clearly, clearly, your good deeds are going to outweigh your bad deeds. And so that in itself ought to just commend you to God, and He ought to shine down and and smile on you every day, and He ought to be pleased and happy just to have you in the world to bless. If that's your idea of yourself, the gospel's foolishness to you. The idea that God would take upon Himself human flesh and come here and live a holy life and die on a cross to pay the price for sin for your sin, that is folly to you if you're self-righteous. The gospel doesn't make any sense. That Jesus came to proclaim the gospel to those who are poor in spirit, the humble and the meek and the contrite of heart. Those are the ones who willingly embrace the gospel. The second thing he came to do is to comfort, uh, sorry, to, he sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to bring good news to the afflicted, and to bind up the brokenhearted. Again, that's a spiritual description of a spiritual reality. Who are the brokenhearted? They're very much like the poor described earlier in the verse. A broken-hearted person is somebody who feels the grievous weight of sin. Right? So you can be poor in spirit and recognize that you are a sinner, but we also recognize that sin has consequences. Sin is fun for a season, but it always has a payoff at the, at the, on the back end. It offers fun up front, but it offers a debt that you have to pay on the back end of that. And so the person who is broken-hearted, broken-hearted, and needs their heart bound up by the Lord Jesus, is the person who feels the gravity and the grievous nature of their sin. They're crushed by it. They recognize that in sinning, I have done harm to myself, I have done harm to my family, I have done harm to my loved ones, I have done harm to everyone around me, I have destroyed this, that, and the other thing. That is the brokenhearted or the contrite person who feels the grievous weight of their sin, the guilt of their conscience, the burden that sin brings, and all of the broken-heartedness that sin ensues, uh, brings upon us. All of that is the broken-hearted individual. He came to proclaim the good news to those who are poor in spirit 
and to bind up or to heal those who are brokenhearted. That is a spiritual reality, being brokenhearted. It is feeling the brokenness of your sin. That is what Jesus came to heal. The third thing he came to do was to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. Liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. Once again, a spiritual description of a spiritual reality. It's not physical prisoners that he's talking about or physical captives. Those who are captives and prisoners, there is, listen, there is no better way to describe sinners than that term, captives and prisoners. As a sinner, before coming to Christ, I owed a debt, a weight of sin debt before God that was too much for me to bear. It was infinite. It was an infinite sin debt. And I was a captive to that. I was cursed because I had failed to keep the law of God, and I rested under the wrath of God, and I was a captive under His wrath. And when I died, He was going to exact punishment upon me for my sin. I am also a captive as an unbeliever because of my sin, and I am a slave to that sin. Like Jesus says in John 8.34, we are slaves to sin. We are slaves to Satan. We are in our nature children of wrath. We are by nature children of Satan. And we are in bondage and iniquity to sin itself. So whom did Jesus come to set free? Those who are slaves of sin, because we cannot free ourselves. So what did Jesus come to save us from? He came to save those who are poor in spirit, those who are brokenhearted and feel the effects of their sin. And he came to save us from the power and the dominion of sin, of Satan, and of ourselves. How does he do this? How does he do it? You and I, when we recognize that we are sinners, that we have violated the wrath of God and that we deserve His justice, we call out upon God for mercy and for grace. And God saves us this way. He sent His Son into the world. He took upon Himself human flesh. He lived a perfect life. And then He offered Himself on a cross as a sacrifice and an atonement to pay the sin debt that you and I owe before God. And when we understand the truth and we repent of our sin, that means turn from our sin, and we believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, God promises to forgive our sins, to cleanse our conscience, to give us a new heart and new affections, new desires, to adopt us into his family, to set us free from sin, Satan, and ourselves, and to make us his own children. Isn't that glorious good news? That's how God does that. Unto us is born a Savior who heals the brokenhearted, who saves the poor in spirit, and who liberates captives and slaves to sin. That is what he came to do. He was born a son, born a sovereign to reign, born to give a sacrifice of his life in our stead as a substitute, and he was born to us a Savior. That's what the angels told the shepherds, right? Unto you this day in the city of David is born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That's what Christ came to do. What does he require of us? Repentance and faith. His first coming he came to save. His second coming, he will come back and he will do the rest of verse 2 to proclaim the day of vengeance of our God. All of us have to understand that when we die, we will face Christ either as our Savior or as our judge. And we will either be free from condemnation because we have embraced what he has done on our behalf or we will face his wrath because we have rejected him and turned away from him and we have insisted upon standing before the holy throne of God in the own, our own robes of our own righteousness. Can you stand before God and proclaim your own goodness? You will never be able to do that. You must repent and you must believe the gospel or you will find yourself living out the rest of verse 2. The year, the day of the vengeance of our God. Unto us is born a Savior. And this is the graciousness of our God and our Christ that He will save those who come to Him with a broken and contrite heart, recognizing their sin and turning from it in repentance and faith. Let's pray together.
Our Father, thank You for saving us from our sin. Thank You for giving us a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And we could never stand before You and make atonement for our own sin. We could never be good enough to make up for all the bad that we have done because we still need to have our sins paid for. We thank You that the Savior has offered to pay that and He has paid that price on behalf of sinners. Thank You for a Savior and a Son who is so willing to leave the the position of power and, and glory of heaven to come here and to live among us and to die as a sacrifice for our sin. Be pleased, we pray, to draw many to your Son this season, that you might be glorified in saving sinners, not because of the good that we have done, but because you are such a good and gracious and kind God. May we be not fear-filled converts, but tear-filled converts, converts who, whose hearts praise you for all the good that you have shown us and for giving to us such a kind Savior. It is in his name that we pray and rejoice this evening. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.